The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Having moved the date, the day for our satsang this week uh, because of the Young Spiral and the meditation which uh, happens tomorrow. I also thought about uh, bringing up a subject which uh, we have not done before in the satsangs here in Agama <coughs> and uh, give a commentary, give a, a mention, a description of um, an issue which is more seldom mentioned in yoga and which, however, is one of the four pillars of yoga. You remember that we say that in the very first lecture about what is yoga, we are saying that people come to yoga to address one of the four fundamental issues, one of them being health and the issues related with the physical body, the second of them being improvement of daily life, that people want to have a good, cool daily life. The third one is that some people are in search of what is called the paranormal. And uh, the fourth one is, of course, the spiritual part of yoga, that yoga fulfills the spiritual part of the human being. We often talk about healing and yoga. It's a subject which is approached several times and uh, about yoga in daily life i talked at sometimes and i shall perhaps resume it in a series of satsangs in this season we very often talk about the spiritual part of yoga because this one appears as the center of yoga as the core of yoga like people who want to go really really deep in yoga they usually address this part and the uh, exception made anecdotally through some of the teachings in the texts, we almost never approach the paranormal part of yoga, like what is yoga doing in this direction of the paranormal. And yet many people, when they have their first interest, their approach to yoga, when they are excited by yoga, they usually start from this dimension. I myself have to confess the first time when I heard about yoga as a method of training the human being, I heard about it because I was coming from the directions of physics and natural science and I had learned about parapsychology and parapsychological phenomena and I wanted to verify if yoga can do that, if yoga can address that. So I myself, when I came to yoga, I was not perfectly aware of the fact that yoga, as the first PhD ever written in yoga, that yoga is something about immortality and freedom. Mircea Eliade in the 1930s, when he wrote the first PhD in history written about yoga, he called his PhD, which today is a book which is still being sold, it's still scholarly, very, very solid, he called it Yoga, Immortality and Freedom, because ultimately, that's what we expect to get, immortality and freedom. But, for example, when I discovered yoga, I didn't know anything about that freedom 
or what it meant, moksha or mukti. I was interested in yoga because of the paranormal environment, of the paranormal legends which hovered around yoga. <clears throat> That's why this is a very interesting approach and um, sometimes some people consider it dangerous like there is the classical attitude which says if you get paranormal abilities but if you are not a spiritual moral and ethical person then you can get a, to be a monstrous egocentric person uh, abusing these kinds of paranormal things while we are forgetting that at the same time the so-called devas the gods of mythology they exist exactly through these paranormal abilities and although some of them have very inflated egos it's not necessarily for them a recipe for disaster this paranormal thing for some people it gives a lot of motivation ultimately my satsangs are met all are meant always to awaken in you aspiration to remind to you why you are here to tell you what we are doing to give you the big picture on yoga to to give to clarify to give instruction so that after every satsang in one way or another you feel more motivated to practice you feel more attracted by the mystery you feel the need to go deeper the paranormal definitely does that but then of course there is this teasing injunction from the great masters of yoga both in India and in Tibet that all these paranormal things precisely because of their potential inflation of the ego and because of other issues they are to be kept very secret they are to be manifested or shown only in exceptional situations and um, very often after having been involved with yoga and implicitly with this quest of the paranormal in a for many years now <clears throat> I've witnessed with surprise that this law of silence this wall of silence about which you learn in the first level intensive of yoga here in Agama which covers the tracks of everything so that ignorant people can sleep the sleep of their ignorance and not be disturbed from the sleep of their ignorance produces such phenomena that even when things which are paranormal in nature happen they are always on the borderline of not seeing them not understanding them forgetting them it's exactly like somebody is trying to trace a trace on water if you trace a trace with your finger on sand it will resist until the first wave of water comes over it or until the first big wind is coming by but if you try to trace a uh, trace with your finger on the surface of the water there will be a bit of disturbance for about 10 seconds which shows where your finger has been and after 10 minutes nobody can see where your finger has been on the surface of the water which means the water is like producing scar tissue it's moving and covering any dent into it and then eventually you don't see anything after a short time it's all gone the same thing is happening very often with the paranormal it is an observation which I heard from some people and uh, I wouldn't have wanted it to be true and eventually nowadays I see uh, I can confirm 
that it is actually true because even when sometimes strange phenomena are happening, it's like two hours later, 80% of the people have forgotten about it or they doubt if they saw right or if uh, they were not hypnotized or some other absurd questions. There's nothing wrong with hypnosis. It doesn't take away the reality of things. Uh, that's just a prejudice that some people are having. And uh, because of that, um, this paranormal angle is very often, uh, it's a, like a legend. It can give aspiration, it can give uh, the feeling that you are moving through a magic land, but at the same time people are shaking their heads and they are saying, you know, can this be demonstrated or what? I am uh, reading again, I'm browsing again these days through an ancient uh, not so ancient, but like something which I read many, many years ago, a book which was written in the 70s about parapsychology. And I am again amazed, even I forgot some facts quoted in those pages because it's a big uh, edition. It's a book edited from 20, 30 different authors. And I'm always surprised about how many things have been done in the 1970s already, demonstrated scientifically at university level, with full-on scientific demonstration, and then the whole thing is like forgotten, and the whole thing is hushed down. Like parapsychology itself is a science which could open to human beings a lot of aspiration. Like until now, the modern science and medicine included still cultivates an incredible doubt about the existence of energy. In the world of science today, more than 51% of the scientists simply believe that prana or chi is the figment of some crazy people's imagination and simply does not exist because they haven't say they say they haven't found any way of demonstrating it scientifically. When you read parapsychology, you start laughing because it's been demonstrated so many times and in so many ways. And there are so many approaches to it, and so many of these phenomena are working incredibly, that basically you are asking yourself, you know, like, what is the whole story about how can people be so blind when we are not talking about the fact that some hippies are stating crazy facts and the scientists are a bunch of sober people who are saying, no, no, that's, that's not the way to show it. We are talking about scientists versus scientists. We are talking about things which have been evidenced to, the, to, to an incredible extent. You know, like the, the researches of Wilhelm Reich or William Saxton Burr and so many, the list could continue. It's enormous. They are so amazing and they have been done, some of them, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, like we're talking about uh, many, many years ago, almost a hundred years ago, and still they are being denied. Here we have this wall of silence, which makes that if some of these things would become collective ownership, like mobile telephones or internet, if some of them would become as widespread as that, then humanity will have to would have to live in another way, on another level. Like many, many errors which are done, such as about the treatment of diseases and others, they would not exist if we would admit 
the research of Wilhelm Reich and Burr <coughs> and Rabbits and so many, so many, the list is Hieronymus, Thomas Gellan Hieronymus and a hundred like them really, one on top of the other, one on top of the other. So what I'm trying to say here is with the paranormal, we are entering even through yoga in a domain where people shake their heads and it's like it's almost too good to be true. It is too fascinating to be true. And then people say, you know, who saw this? And if I show you research in parapsychology, you will see that many of these things, especially the regular size ones, they have been seen, they have been experienced several times. And yet, at the same time, they remain on the fringe of the human knowledge. And this tendency of the wall of silence to cover the tracks of everything, to protect the tamas, guna, to protect the inertia, the obscurity, the ignorance of everybody, is a formidable force. And that's why this subject is always shrouded in mystery. I, I have here a little material. I'm not going to read it uh, to the letter. I have, because I just simply didn't want, I want to, I systematized at some point this subject. <laughs> and I don't want to speak freely, forgetting thus some little uh, or important aspect here and there. And thus I'm going to give you an account, first of all, of this so-called Siddhis, the Sanskrit word is Siddhis. The Siddhis as mentioned in yoga, the paranormal abilities of the mind. First, from the very beginning, I said that there are two kinds of such capabilities of the mind and the first category are the powers or perfections the word siddhi in Sanskrit means perfection so when you have the siddhi of sight like clairvoyance voyance it's from French to see and clairvoyance is to see clearly to see what other people can't see this is called a siddhi of sight which means it's a perfection of sight Normal people can see with their two eyes and they can see five kilometers away and clairvoyance makes you see much, much further, deeper, better, wider and qualitatively different. So therefore it's called like the perfection of the sight organ. That's why uh, they are called in Sanskrit siddhis. It's like taking the five sense organs and everything to a level of perfection which the normal <coughs> citizen does not understand. It's exactly like you would, instead of having a telescope, an optic telescope, and looking at the stars, you would have the same telescope scoping the stars in infrared light, in ultraviolet light, in X-rays, in gamma rays, and see a whole spectrum of things, and some of the things which cannot be seen visibly, such as the radiation from the black holes in the universe, can be seen very well when you look at it in X-rays or in gamma rays. Black holes are visible in a certain spectrum. And thus what I'm trying to say is exactly the same thing with the sense organs and the human perceptions. They can be widened and then they become a sort of perfect sense. This has been called in Sanskrit Siddhi to bring certain parts of the human perception to perfection. And the first category, the, always the yogis start with the upper part, which is the most scary one, the biggest one, so much bigger than nature. 
<clears throat> which are the powers or perfection that refer to an actual spiritual realization being known as under the name of powers of the essential intrinsical form, the Svarupa Siddhis. Some people call them Maha Siddhis, like large Siddhis, real big Siddhis. And they, these are actually genuine stages in the trip or on, on the trip of the individual being towards the supreme reintegration. These Maha Siddhis are associated by great yogis like Ramakrishna and others with the arousing of the third eye. It's very pertinent, I thought, that I'm speaking about this since tomorrow some of you will study uh, the third eye retreat uh, or, and techniques uh, thereof. And um, the third eye is somehow on the fringe between matter and spirit. Lower than the third eye, we have the five chakras which defy the five elements and therefore the material universe. And higher than the third eye, we have Sahasrara, the crown chakra, which defines the world of spirit. In between them, we have Ajna chakra, which is mind. One foot in the world and one foot connected to the higher spirit. That's why mind, which is the highest, the highest force in manifestation, it gives at the highest level some perfections which are bigger than nature. If you develop, let's say, something in Manipura chakra, which is related to the sense of sight, and the Manipura chakra developed to a certain level, that it can give clear sight, perfect sight. This is being a clumsy English translation of the already um, settled uh, terminology of clairvoyance. Many, very few people realize that most of the forms of clairvoyance where people see auras and colors and the likes of it, they actually come from Manipura chakra. It's not necessarily something very high in the chakras when somebody has such a capability. But of course, it's a Manipura chakra polished like a diamond. It's polished to perfection and uh, beyond a certain level. So it's definitely not an average Manipura chakra. And uh, that's why I'm saying clairvoyance may often be related to Manipura chakra. Ajna chakra comes with things much bigger than the clairvoyance itself. If we would have the time to stop now and study parapsychologically, which are the different aspects of clairvoyance, that some people can take an object in their hand and find out to whom the object belonged, like psychometric reading. Some people with clairvoyance can look and see auras, either in the field of health and healing, or auras in the field of emotions and mind, like the higher auras. Clairvoyance means that some people can exert remote viewing and see at a distance different things. Some people with clairvoyance found missing persons, dead or alive. Some forms of clairvoyance represent seeing things from the past or the future, such as seeing people's aspects in previous lives or making prophecies and predictions about the future. And there are other aspects of clairvoyance even besides this. So clairvoyance itself is a very complex science. It's a very complex dimension of it. And still, we say, okay, it's related to Manipura. But the Mahasiddhis from Ajna Chakra, they are much, much bigger than this. And sometimes you wonder who invented those things, like how developed. If this is a sort of a Walt Disney story, 
what kind of imagination should the persons who came up with this should have had? Like, who is thinking about these things when they are traveling with a train from one city to another, and they are just putting the chin on their fist, and they are looking through the window, and their mind goes taka, 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 taka into some revelry. If this is the result of some dream, of some wishful thinking, try to find out how often did you, in your life, have a wishful thinking which came even close to this. And you are going to find out that even that is not the case. Like even dreaming about these things is very, very far out. And then if we take the possibility that these are actually things discovered and not imagined but revealed, then automatically you will have a scope to the fact where this goes. These Mahasiddhis are a sort of a borderline between material and spiritual thing. And in India, some yogis working extensively on Ajna Chakra, they started having manifestations of such things, of such capabilities, even if they were not looking for anything hip. They were not looking for anything exciting in any way, and still they had some insights or some phenomena from this kind. That's why I said here that these are stages in the trip of the individual towards the divine. Like sometimes yogis who didn't have an interest in siddhis as a subject in the paranormal, they still stumbled over it because these sort of siddhis, they are at the borderline with the spirit. They have a spiritual version. I'm going to see that they are eight in number. And these eight Mahasiddhis, they even have a spiritualized version, like a hyper-spiritualized version, where you go more towards Sahasrara, more towards the crown chakra. And the idea being that some people who would not be interested in bending spoons, uh, or in levitation, or in cultivating invisibility, or some other bizarre assertions or capabilities, even those people sometimes they would stumble over some of these things in a spiritual way. Let's never forget that the true goal of yoga is to become identical to Shiva. The true goal of yoga is to become the master of the universe because you are all sharing the Atman or the divine self, the supreme consciousness, and this supreme consciousness exists in you as well as in Shiva identically. There is no difference in between the quality of your Atman and the Paramatman or the Atman of the universe, the Atman of God, if you prefer. And because of this, exactly as the divine consciousness is credited with being omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and so on, exactly in the same way somebody would say, if I really, 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 really 100% become identical to God or to Shiva, then I also am supposed to be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and that. The question is that I might have realized that to, a, to an extent of 30% or 10%, and still I am exceptional compared to the average inhabitant of the planet Earth, but at the same time, perhaps that belief, that phenomenon, does not manifest to the full intensity in me. That's why the Mahasiddhis are considered generally in yoga what's happening to a person after reaching enlightenment, 
and going to full Shiva realization. In Kashmiri Shaivism language, there is a stage called Atma Vyapti, which corresponds to what Patanjali and Yogananda Paramahamsa have called Nirvikalpa Samadhi, a sort of a void Samadhi, and then opening the eyes and going into the open eyes Samadhi, which is the Unmilana Samadhi, or Ramakrishna called it Bhava Samadhi, Samadhi accompanied by emotion, Samadhi accompanied by experience, by living, which is the Samadhi of one like Jesus when he says, I and my Father, which is God, I and God are one and the same, which can mean either blasphemy, like if a person says, I am God through and through, either the man is a insane person who has to be committed into an institution, or if it's right indeed, like Jesus tended to prove his point, to make his point, then automatically we are talking about the fact that everything comes through the spiritual part. This is the dream of many yogis that instead of spending hours and hours and hours every day trying to use an eggly wheel or something to develop psychokinetic abilities, they would better become one with Shiva. And when that union is becoming 10%, 30%, 70%, 100%, then they can also bend spoons and move the orbit of the earth of its axis, should they wish so, because they have got access to a power which is all-inclusive and all-embracing. Uh, That's why the Mahasiddhis are more on this side. They are things which are really, really big, and great yogis say it's in Ajis, the perfection of Ajna Chakra, as you are opening towards the crown chakra. And without further ado, without uh, any further ado, let us simply mention them. I have a few pages about them, but I'm not going to go full on into each one of them. I prefer to read, although it's a bit more dull when I read, uh, simply because I want to have a few things said very clearly uh, into detail. And then I'm going to show you immediately, this will take probably 10 minutes or so, to, for you to understand these Maha Siddhis, and then to understand, to see that even these ones, some yogis consider them not clearly spiritually enough, and therefore they would say you have to have a more spiritualized version, and there exists like a distilled version, uh, which is like the spiritual version of the Maha Siddhis. Those will be like the Maha Maha Siddhis. They will be like even closer. Um, are these within reason? The yoga tradition speaks about them in various treatises, uh, like attainable, like obtainable. Of course, as you know already, these things are for those who spend uh, you know, decades in doing yoga day in and day out. These are not like when you obtain these things, you are not a mortal. You are not one of the common mortals walking the face of this earth. You may still look like one, but inside you are not. Exactly as the beautiful Tibetan Lama in the documentary the yogis of Tibet, who says exactly this. He spent 30 years alone in some cave in the mountains. And when you spend 30 years in a cave in the mountains, either you masturbate all day long and go crazy, or you reach Mahasiddhis and spiritual realization. It's a form of extreme 
tapas in which the person pushes themselves into madness or enlightenment. It's like nothing or everything. And uh, of course, it's not done as simple as that. The people who do it, they have gurus who advise them step by step until they become independent on this path. It's a pretty extreme path. What I'm trying to say here, this old man that you can see in this documentary, he says it very beautifully. He says, because he, nobody ever interviewed him because he never acceded to that. Finally, somebody managed to get some, uh, in some way to interview him. And he's very dismissive and very tough. And he says, you guys, you are looking at me and looking at me as a human being. Because your camera tells you that I have a DNA of a human being and I'm one of you. But he says, from where I sit, I don't see it like this. Like, I don't feel myself I'm a human being. And that's been for many, many years now. Like, it's long time since I don't perceive myself as one of the people on the earth. Because of some karmic needs and because of a mission which I have, I continue to inhabit in this body and keep it alive. And I still have a few years to live in this body on the surface of the earth. But this old man, he was at this level. At this level, people surpass that normality. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa told to his disciple Swami Vivekananda, the great Swami Vivekananda of India, he told him, look, in my experiments with yoga, which meant a crazy lifetime devoted to yoga, he said, in my experiments devoted to yoga, I have discovered, among others, the eight Mahasiddhis. I stumbled over the eight Mahasiddhis. You know, it's like, would you like to have them? Like, he even claimed that he could pass them on to somebody. It's a thing which is mentioned in many yogic traditions. So therefore, this Mahasiddhis, it's not something which I have picked up from an obscure text or something. They are through and through in the yoga tradition. From the north of India in Kashmir to the south of India in Tamil Nadu and Shaiva Siddhanta, in all the traditions of yoga of India, these Mahasiddhis are mentioned perennially, which means uh, they are more than just somebody's invention. They have been adopted and confirmed by many, many lineages of yoga. The first typically mentioned, and sometimes great yogis don't bother to mention the others, they say the powers like anima, etc., because they just quote the first of them. The first call of them is called anima, and this anima means to become at will in the plane of consciousness, that means not physically, you won't see it physically, only in your consciousness, so you close your eyes and in your consciousness you become at will as small as an atom. It's a sort of zooming the consciousness to a level which is infinitesimal at the level of elementary particles. <clears throat> the Sanskrit word anima actually proceeds from the word from the root anu, which means atom. So it means to become atomic. The atom represents in the age-old Vedic tradition the limit of divisibility of the space. Like they consider that that's the smallest one can get. According to Hatha Yoga, the laws of space as we know them are no longer valid within the atom. And funnily enough, the same thing has been said by quantum mechanics. That space, time and many other laws, they don't manifest the same when you go at the level of the universe. Where you have the theory of relativity taking over 
or when you go at the level of the atomic particles where you have quantum mechanics taking over and both of them are different from the Newtonian universe in which we live. So it is known, it's confirmed now in science that this extreme altering of the space takes us to a totally different reality. The capacity of anima therefore allows to the adept thanks to an unusual mental concentration to become at the level of the consciousness small as, the, as he wishes and otherwise to said it means that he can perceive directly by clairvoyance even the most tiny object reaching till the most intimate structure of the atom which he perceives in the small infinite as clear as the object that may be seen at the human scale by the common eye. The, this capacity also allows one to note essential energies in the small infinite and this simply says if you could go to the level of the atom you could produce atomic phenomena, sublimation, transmutation, mutations in the structure of the quantic matter and that therefore means going very very deep. The yogis say sometimes that the Atman, the self, is like an atom, it's like a bindu. It's like a point of no size, a zero bindu, which is placed in the human heart, in the jiva, it's the jivatman, as it is called. This concentration of becoming small as an atom is about going into the world of jivatman, going to the place where the self is, like the soul, the self is so small, it is so delicate that it's not something physical. But moving at that level, things can be done. It is also a power which means going from soul to soul. If somebody has this atomic power of the soul, one can touch another soul. So anima means to go into the microscopic thing. Of course, when you hear about it, it sounds like a scientific stunt. And sometimes it does translate like this. For example, Rumi the great Sufi, Islamic, mystic in the 12th century, he mentions clearly in one of his writings the atomic structure of matter. He describes atoms. And in the same book, later at some other chapter, he describes solar systems and galaxies. None of them were possible in the 12th century with the instruments of science, of objective knowledge, which existed at that time which is obvious, which makes it obvious that either Rumi heard this story and then he is just a storyteller or more precisely, more probably, he is a very advanced spiritual being and actually in his meditation, going, zooming down to the soul, which is so important for the Sufi mystic, then he also has perceived things about the structure of the universe, including the structure of the matter. This is anima, which is again related with going into the individual soul. The second, I'm giving them in the traditional order. I, as an engineer, would have grouped them in a different way, but uh, they were not written by engineers, they were written by yogis, and therefore sometimes the subject seems to go in a poetic way, coming back, coiling back onto itself. The second, is called lagima and lagima means it's lightness and it means no longer having at will weight. One of the outcomes of this phenomenon could be, and it's not compulsory that, it could be levitation. But here the things are more subtle. 
because weight means that we are material. Weight means the, the earth element from Muladhara chakra. Weight is like the opposite of Sahasrara. So in the moment when you have no weight, it's like nothing holds you down. Many of you are working on the sublimation of energy and you sublime the energy today and tomorrow your energy is back in your Muladhara and Svadhisthana and you again have to do your headstand or Udhyana Bandha or Nauli Kriya or whatever you do because it's like a Sisyphus like a work. You are pushing a boulder up a slope and by the morning it rolls back to the bottom of the hill and then you have to take it again up every day of your life till you pass away. This is Lagima, like if you would have Lagima, the boulder will not roll back anymore. It's like you have a light in spirit. It's the opposite of heaviness, of hanging heavily. So there is a metaphor to it. This thing with the levitation is a very material and external consequence of it. Because the yogis, they have said that levitation in itself... It's like today we are levitating with airplanes or something like and it's practical and we go from here to there. It's not really the point of it that somebody should be able to lift in the air for one meter. That in itself, it's a bit of a very limited and idiotic little accomplishment which in itself doesn't lead too far and it doesn't mean too much. So Lagima, according to the Markandeya Purana, means to have an extreme speed of vibration. Low chakras are slow. The higher you go, it's like the energy vibrates 10 times faster, 10 times faster, 10 times faster, and 10 times faster. Every chakra is like a new octave of energy where it goes higher, 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 so that at the level of Ajna chakra, at the level of Sahasrara, the energy has a very fast, frequency. The energy is very alive. To be in high spirit as being heavy, depressed and in low spirit. The, the disease of modern times, one of the diseases of modern times is depression. But depression is nothing else than heaviness. In the old days, people have much less food, much less protein. People had to earn things with a lot of physical effort. And people were in this way actually maintaining themselves lighter. Today when people have so much ease in becoming couch potatoes. And then everybody is becoming, not everybody, but tends to become tamasic, heavy. And then there is no wonder that our spirit follows the same suit. That we are becoming heavy. That we are becoming uh, engrossed in matter. And then we are becoming depressed. We are not in high spirits, we are in low spirits. Our aura does not vibrate with high frequency of vibration. Our aura is slow and dull. And that's why, interestingly, while lagima means lightness and it can lead to levitation, the Markandeya Purana fundamental text says it's actually about the speed of vibration of the energy. This controlling of the weight and cancelling of the gravitational is obtained in yoga by identifying or concentration upon the ascending subtle energy or udana vayu. Those of you who did the second month and heard about the vayus or those of you who attended our Art of Dying workshop, you know what the story with this udana vayu is. 
it is one of the five fundamental etheric energies in the chakras in yoga and by enhancing in every constitutive part of the body of a centrifugal tendency opposed to the normal one. Remember the earth is spinning. The earth is like a spinning wheel of some sort. If you would spin the earth ten times faster or a hundred times faster, everybody on the surface of the earth would go like poof. Because it's exactly like you'd spin a wheel which is wet and the drops of water would splash out because of what is called in physics the centrifugal force. But we who live on the face of the earth, we are not centrifugal. We are centripetal. We, every time when you jump from two meters, you don't go up in the stratosphere and out in the universe. You fall down on the earth. So at the level where we are, the, our body resonates more with the centripetal forces that, than with the centrifugal forces. And that's why I said here that in yoga, one has to meditate on this force which takes you away from the earth, not towards the earth, which is grounding you and keeping you down. The grounding is exactly the opposite of this lagima. <coughs> Certain yogic texts assure that this may be reached very easily, much easier than the telepathic capacities, for example. The funny thing is that sometimes people have levitation or anti-gravitational phenomena even earlier than the eight Mahasiddhis. There is an experiment which you should do from time to time because it's exactly one of these wall of silence things. It has been known, it has been noticed, there are parapsychological measurements about it, and yet nobody, <coughs> everybody says, yeah, what does this demonstrate? It's the classical experiment where you take a person of about 80 kilos, like heavy, average towards heavy type of person, and you put that person on a chair, and then four people stack their hands on top of the head of that person, like a multi, four people from four corners, they place their hands just like this over the head of the sitting person, and the, whole, the only thing is that the two hands of the same person should not touch, like there should be a sandwich of other hands between your own hands. So you stack the hands and you place them right on top of the head, and some people say you can gently relax the arms, like press. But some people say even if you make a muscular effort and keep your hands up, like you don't really press at all, it still works because it's nothing to do with the pressure. And this is kept for approximately one minute. It works even in 30 seconds. I've tried this experiment several times. And then at a given sign, the, first pe the four people in a matter of five seconds, like it has to be done quickly, you just take your fingers, you place your fingers like this with the index fingers like this, and they place the fingers, two of them under the knees here, like one from here and one from here, and two of them under the armpits here. So four people with just the index fingers place them in the armpits and fingers, and they lift the person. And you will be amazed of what's happening when you do this experiment. If uh, we would have a workshop now to do a little bit of fun with an experiment, you would do that experiment. And it's impossible not to notice that the person to whom this is done, for about 20-30 seconds, that person becomes much, much lighter. Actually, the experiment is done that in the beginning you try to do it. So the four people try to put their fingers like this, 
and to lift. And if it's a person of, 20, of 80 kilos, it means every person who has to lift has to lift approximately 20, fingers on, 20 kilos on their fingers, which is pretty much impossible. Like your fingers can't take 20 kilos, and if you put 20 kilos, you'll definitely feel it. And they don't succeed. And then they put the palms like this for one minute, then they come back again, and the second time is like the person is three times lighter than that. This is a phenomenon of anti-gravitation and lagima, little lagima, levitation, partial levitation, which is produced because you put project some cosmic energy from your palms, and the energy goes through the sushumna nadi of the person, through the central channel, and it bounces in muladhara. It hits muladhara. And muladhara develops a counter-reaction because this energy is given to it. So you give this energy for one minute, and then muladhara goes like this. And when muladhara goes like this, the person is much lighter and can be lifted just like that. That's why I wrote here that in yoga it is written that people develop such manifestations even earlier. This is, the yogis mention it as lagima in the meaning of being light in spirit, like soaring high and having an extreme vibration of the spirit. But when you take it to the lower applications of it, it has been demonstrated very often that uh, it happens <coughs> uh, in, in normal conditions. I remember when I was teaching a class of pranayama some 20 years ago, that there was a girl who simply hopped in the air like a frog, like this, because during pranayama she hit a phenomenon of levitation. So she hopped about one meter in the air, cross-legged being, then she fell down on the ground and she fainted. And she took about 30 seconds before she recovered. Like she, le she had a push of levitation in the front of the whole class. Everybody who was seeing her, who was looking her way, saw this girl floating about one meter in the air and then falling down and losing her awareness and so on. So such phenomena do happen. And um, the use of this method of samyama combined with certain breathing techniques makes that levitation is frequent in Hatha Yoga. Actually, fundamental yoga texts like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and so on, they give levitation as a sign of success in pranayama. They say if you have become the king of pranayama, any one of you wants to claim that your pranayama has reached perfection, that's verified in yoga by levitation. It, it results in automatic levitation. So that's why I'm saying the road is long, the path is long, and... Um, we move to the third of them. The third of the Mahasiddhis is called Mahima, and it is the op opposite of Anima. That's why I would have put them together, Anima, Mahima. Because Mahima is to become at will, again in the plane of consciousness, is not a physical thing. It's only your consciousness. As long as you are in a body, you cannot force some of the limits of the body. So only in terms of consciousness, you can become extraordinarily big including in this expansion the whole immensity of the macrocosm in the sphere of one's consciousness. It means you can become as big as the solar system, as big as a galaxy, as big as the universe. The higher the level of consciousness goes, the bigger this expansion can go. Here in Agama, we teach in one of the levels, beyond the fourth level, we teach the meditation of expansion and contraction, which is inspired in yoga from the development of Ajna Chakra, that with Ajna Chakra you can expand, 
and with Ajna Chakra you can shrink to the level of the atom. Ahima, anima and Mahima, the two extremes of it. This capacity allows to the adept to feel and to include as they would unfold in, his own, in their own being a phenomenon, an object, a being, as well as crowds of people, a town, a country, a continent, a planet, solar systems, or even universes. By this, the advanced adept gradually becomes all-encompassing at the level of consciousness and can perceive accurately and unerringly the simultaneous multiplicity of phenomena, the most grandiose aspects of creation, as all these would occur within himself. According to Markandeya Purana, which is a text, an old text of India, Mahima also means to be honored and to serve all the beings because it's a form of omnipresence. If you become as big as a galaxy, then everything which happens inside that galaxy is in you and you are like the god of that galaxy. You are identifying with the consciousness at the level of that universe, solar system, galaxy, whatever it is. This is again difficult to conceive. Remember that one like Rumi has understood the structure of galaxies. He describes the spiral of the Milky Way. While from where we are, it's impossible to perceive the Milky Way as being a spiral because we are in the plane of it and we can't see it. But the Milky Way today, astronomers know, is like a three-sided spiral, like a spiral with three arms. And Rumi, in the 12th century, either he got visited by the aliens who told him this, or he experienced Mahima, where he experienced something about the structure of the universe. The fourth is again the opposite of the second, and that's why they come like one, three, two, and four. They are just opposites, and it's called garima, to be able to be at will very heavy. This capacity is the opposite of lagima. It allows to the advanced adept to make the body or any other object as heavy as a mountain and impossible to move or lift. Yet, certain yoga treatises omit garima because it's like repeat if we have lagima then garima is a sort of the opposite of it and it's an extension it's not very original not very creative and they replace it by another one called kama vasaita which means complete satisfaction an unusual power obtained through yoga which allows it will to the advanced adept to feel always and in all the ways perfectly satisfied it's like eternal happiness like you will never be dissatisfied let's put it the other way around which for many people would be the very definition of eternal joy and of happiness this garima does not seem to have any application there however i've read many stories of it for example it is known that when the nazis occupied different countries of europe when they were leaving when they started getting defeated they started gathering everything which was precious culturally, artistically, and so on, such as paintings, pieces of art, and everything. And uh, when the same thing happened in the country where I was born, in Romania, they were trying to pick up from there the relics of a famous saint. There is a saint woman, if I... I even forgot exactly the, her name, I think, Philomena or Philotea or something, which is which exists, it's a body, it's an undecomposed, incorruptible body, like the body of the two Buddhist monks in Koh Samui that have died and their body did not rot, it just became mummified 
in a climate where if you have a little cut, it festers and it infects in a matter of hours. And in this climate, if somebody dies, you'd expect them to go rotten and full of worms in no time in this temperature and humidity. But even in this, some Buddhist meditators from the other island, when they died, they were so full of this incorruptibility, of this energy of purity, that even the worms and the bacteria did not come to their body, and the body simply dried up, and today it exists as mummy in a village culture of Thailand, of all places. So this phenomenon exists. So there exists a few such, such bodies, quite a few of them, in Europe. Very few of you know, you don't learn these things in school, because school has become an atheistic instrument today. But in many places in Europe, there exist such undecomposed bodies. Like go in Italy and see the body of Padre Pio, who died in 1960, and try to find out why a body which died in 1960, in 2015, it looks like it's sleeping. It looks, it's like an old man there, it didn't even get mummified. Slightly, slightly dry in the skin, but even that, not too much. So there exist such relics, and the Nazis consider them interesting. So they, when they left, they took one such relic from a church, and they put it in a train to take it to Germany. And what happened is that the train got stuck. That wagon became like a hundred gazillion tons heavy, and the locomotive couldn't pull it. And they tried. They changed the locomotive. They did everything which you would expect Germans would do. Like they did all the technical things which they could do to get the bloody train to move. Until somebody told them, decouple this wagon, because your train will not move with this wagon. One, because this female saint, she doesn't want to be taken out of this country. She doesn't want to be taken out of this place. Basically, this saint, whose name, again, I forgot, she was practicing Garima. She simply manifested Garima, the power of heaviness, which is mentioned in the yogic text. It's not the only thing, time when this has happened. This is one story out of many that I could tell you that exist in various environments where this power of Garima, although it sounds redundant here, it has been known. Of course, the other alternative in some yoga texts that instead of this, the number four on the list would be Kama Vasaita, Complete satisfaction kama, comes from desire, like fulfillment of desires. It's like too good to be true. That's the, for some people, that's the very definition of happiness. Whatever I want, I get whenever I want, however I want. All my desires are being fulfilled. That's lovely. That's, that means to be in the position of God. You know, like whatever you will is happening. The fifth of the Maha Siddhis, we are still in the Maha Siddhis, is called Prapti, which is by definition to transport oneself at will, integrally and invisibly, with the consciousness. Some people, like Milarepa, discovered that it works with the body as well, in any epoch, like in any time, place, or dimension, like parallel universes, enjoying all the six senses, not five, all the six senses, that the common man uses at the level of the physical body. That means going back in time, forth in time, going in any place, or going in any level of the universe. That's exactly how Milarepa, the Tibetan yogi, describes his success after 30 years of yoga. He says, when I reach this, 
I could move from the bottom of the universe to the top. I could experience the existential condition of any being in the six lokas of the universe. I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. I could be whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, however I wanted. That's a manifestation of prapti. The advanced adept, as an explanation I wrote here, can therefore have the necessary energy for moving from a mental, a psychic standpoint by a mere act of will, practically instantaneously in any parallel world, superior or inferior, in any epoch, past, present or future, and to experience integrally all the states at the level of all the senses that are related with that displacement as long as he wishes it, exactly as if he would be physically there. Or according to Shiva Samhita, quote, always he always has as quick as lightning at hand all he wants to see or know, unquote. And according to the Markandeya Purana, the other text, he, quote, obtains always all that he wants to find out until becoming detached, there remains nothing more to be desired by him. The moment when you can find out anything, you are like God, omniscient, and then the desire disappears like there is nothing to know anymore. The six is redundant a little bit with Kama Vasaita, it's called Prakamya, and it is defined as follows. To see all one's desires of any kind fulfilling entirely. Accordingly, as he manages to control a more and more complex range of macrocosmic energies, the yogi notes that in a certain lapse of time, shorter and shorter, his most tiny as well as his most unusual desires are fulfilled at will. Or according to Shiva Sadhita, he, quote, he can anytime make manifest visibly or invisibly the desire or will to accomplish whatever. Whatever you want happens. Of course, people would say it's a pretty dangerous one if you would not be a spiritual person. And many people have invented the dictum, be careful what you wish for, because it actually might happen. Uh, that's prakamiya. Prakamiya is a power of the Mahasiddhis, which simply says, it happens. And according to Markandeya Purana, prakamiya is defined as this, quote, by his will, he penetrates and attracts irresistibly towards himself those things or brings about those phenomena that he wishes. That's the very definition of what the joking people who made the video and the book called The Secret, as well as many others before them, they keep on pestering. That like if you desire something, if you, uh, you attract it, it's the law of attraction, that if you... If you imagine that you have a Mercedes-Benz, a convertible Mercedes-Benz, you are going to attract it towards you and you are going to produce it with your mind. It's true, but it takes one of the eight Mahasiddhis. It's a manifestation of Prakamya. <coughs> Therefore, this happens to ten people in a hundred years and they write books about like the secret or the power of the subconscious mind and... They say, you can do it also. They forget to tell you, you can do it also if you have an Ajna Chakra as big as mine. That's the little, not little at all, detail which is not said in this sentence. Prakamya exists, but it is a Mahasiddhi and it depends on the proportional arousing of Ajna Chakra. 
So only those that have a solar balanced, powerful, controlled Ajna Chakra can exert things like that one in Prakamya. Seventh of the Mahasiddhis is called Vashitva from Isha, Vasa, Ishitva from full mastery. Mastery in an unusual way, hypnotico-telepathic of all the creatures and of all the elements. By this capacity, the advanced adept may make to act as he himself wishes any of the beings of the three worlds, establishing an ineffable communication with that being, indifferently if she belongs to the past, present, or future, according to Shiva Samhita. Shiva Samhita says that if you have this power, you can focus and determine Julius Caesar to act differently, which makes it completely incomprehensible because the normal person thinks that the history is something hammered and nailed and you can't change it and so on. It's not true. The whole continuum of space and time is a continually modifiable thing which contains all the alternatives and all the variables possible and we are just living a timeline according to our awareness, just one possibility out of an infinity and therefore every alternative of this universe is possible and Ajna Chakra can change it. I'm telling you these things because it gives you, I know that they look like very big, but this gives you this surreal feeling of where yoga is going. How far is yoga from just a fitness or manipulating two energies through your legs or through your neck? This is where yoga is coming from. The people who did yoga, they were thinking about such things. That those were their dreams, those were their goals, that was the scope of their spirit, that you reach the eight Mahasiddhis if you go far enough and so on. He also rules entirely over the wind, the rain and the other elements and according to Markandeya Purana, he quote, controls all what he wants by the power of his will, unquote. This is like a power of a, an irresistible will by which like you can ask is it moral to take a human being and make them do what you want generally not because if it would be god would control everybody totally and while we can very well surrender and say may god give me whatever is there nevertheless the divine consciousness gives to every human being a certain lee a certain a certain rope a certain freedom so that people manifest a certain kind of free will and they make choices. People are coming to crossroads and they make choices where to go or at least they think that they do. To their consciousness it appears like they are choices and therefore this Vashitva, you know, if, if Vashitva would be exerted all the time by God then there would be no person who would ever do anything wrong because everybody would do 100% what God wants. But we know in spirituality that great spiritual authorities spoke about spiritual errors and people doing wrong things, which means God, although omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, does not exert Vashidva 24-7 on everybody. And that's why, of course, the yogis who want to be like God, they don't think this Vashidva is a power which exists, you can play with it three times just to see if it works, but it doesn't mean that then every day you are going to play with it and do things with it because 
if it would have been necessary, the divine consciousness would have done that already. So it's something which is, these things are bigger than reality, as I told you. Finally, the number eight in this fascinating list is Ishitva, or the super sublime and amazing rain. Isha, Ishvara means lordship, so Ishitva. The adept may conduct and decide according to his own will the things and all the phenomena, enjoying an extraordinary glory. He has complete powers upon creation, preservation, destruction, or death of all beings and things, on all beings that he wants to help, and of all things. He may also make appear by materialization, maintain, live, and disappear new beings and new objects, even if these ones do not exist now, since they would have normally belonged to the past or to the future. And according to Markandeya Purana, reading this power, reaching this power, he, quote, appears magnificent and fascinating like a god, unquote. So these are glorious powers, supreme powers, which address, like you can say that, if somebody on this earth had the eight Mahasiddhis, must have been Jesus, for example. He could do whatever he wanted. He demonstrated that his power was, at least in the field of that geographical area, was unlimited. Like nobody tried to determine Jesus to shift the rotation of the earth around its axis because people didn't even realize that the earth is something which rotates around an axis. So their mind didn't reach so far and therefore nobody asked or contemplated this kind of deeds. But people were living in the small Palestinian life of those days, and they were dealing with leprosy, with blindness, with dead people, with possession, with other things. And in what concerned those, Jesus walked like a god around, and whatever it was, he just snapped his fingers, and the eight Mahasiddhis make, made things happen. This is the scope of the eight Mahasiddhis, and they have their spiritual counterparts. Like some yogis being afraid that this sounds so tempting, and it can actually lead to a sort of inflation of the ego, although at that level it's hard to talk about an inflation of the ego. They wanted to show more the spiritual part, like what's happening when these Mahasiddhis from Ajna they move towards Sahasrara. So quickly, let me go with you, just much quicker, <coughs> through the sisters. Like each one of these, Anima, Mahima, Lagima, and so on, has a, spir a more spiritualized distilled sister. And they are called with the same name, but putting in front of that name either the word Para, which means supremely so, or Maha, meaning greatly so. And instead of Anima, we therefore have Para Anima, the great anima, the power of the extreme subtle. The senses are more subtle than the body. The mind is more subtle than the senses. The supramental is more subtle than the mind. And above all these, the supreme self, Atman, is more subtle even than the supramental. Therefore, the supreme self is the absolute limit of subtleness. And para anima, the power of the extreme subtle, involves the power of the supreme self. This is manifest through an actual and continual state of consciousness which says, I am para anima, the extreme subtle in within me. I'm no longer separated of the extreme subtle, but entirely identified with it. It's a sort of continuous connection with the anima, with the soul, with the self. Para lagima, 
the power of the extreme lightness. Nothing has more light than the Supreme Self. The continual experience that the Supreme Light resides in me is Paralagima Siddhi, the power of the extreme light. Like it takes everything and instead of talking about levitation or just lightness of energy, it talks about connecting to the self. Paramahima, the power of extreme immensity, that I am enormous as much as the cosmic consciousness. Mahaprapti, instead of prapti, mahaprapti, not para. Prapti didn't sound well in Sanskrit. You don't have a year, most of you, for Sanskrit. But in Sanskrit, it's more beautiful to say mahaprapti instead of paraprapti because it's too many para, para, para there in, in the word. It's, it's an onomatopoeic thing. Sanskrit has some onomatopoeic things. The omnipresence, mahaprapti, instead it means that the direct experience that I am the Supreme Self, the source of this vibration that is this existence, if I do not emit this vibration, nothing exists. Fifth, paraprakamya, the fulfillment of all desires. The yogin who has understood the existence and masters it, sees that there is nothing besides the desire. The desire is the supreme ruler of the entire creation, preservation and dissolution. Desire is the Supreme Self manifested as the ego. Because in the beginning, even the Bible said, and God said, let there be light. This is a desire, like God desires that there should be light. So the first force which moves is the desire of God. In India, the yogis of India call this Icha Shakti, and it corresponds to the great cosmic power, Tripura Sundari, which is the manifestation of Icha Shakti, the first desire of the divine consciousness. So this is Paraprakamya, is related to that. It's a resonance with Tripura Sundari. And therefore, it is necessary that one desires forcefully to reach at the very possession of the desire without object of the desire. The desire without object. Like doing without being attached to the fruits of action. God desires, but not in an attached way. Mahavashitva, the universal mastery. The direct experience that all that appears as individual being exists only because I, the Supreme Self, am. I, the Supreme Self, am their foundation and they all spring from my center. Maheshitva, the Mahaishitva, the absolute rule, all may be perceived to belong to the three planes of existence, the gross, the subtle, the causal, and the absolute rule is the capacity of distinguishing perfectly these three planes from each other. This is, we show an example of this in our metaphysical workshop where this distinction is brought by the big yogis and it clarifies clearly the evolution and the becoming of the soul and of the human being. It's fundamental knowledge in yoga. So the con this continuous state of superconsciousness is that I, the Supreme Self, am the master of all that exists, gross or subtle, because of fear of me the sun shines and the fire burns. That's what an Upanishad says. Through my order, the wind blows. It's the power of an absolute rule by identification with the Supreme Self. And finally, the eighth here on this list is mentioned as para kama avasaita, kama avasaita, para kama avasaita, the total extreme satisfaction. And it's of course coming from the, the when the final goal has been reached, which means full spiritual realization, what remains there remains nothing which deserves to be desired, nothing to be seen, nothing to have. When one realizes in actual fact and ceaselessly that I, submerged in the Supreme Self, have reached the essential root of my own nature, 
there's nothing left for me to possess or know. This is the power of total extreme satisfaction, and it is the direct knowledge of the Supreme Self or Atma. As you can see, these eight versions of the powers as spiritual ones, they are described like even more spiritualized. It's like a fear that one may fall into some uh, levity or into some, um, I don't know, material attachment of some sort. And that's why they are taken like really to the limit of the Supreme Self. These are, when you hear yogis in India or yogic texts that speak about the great eight Mahasiddhis, or they speak about anima powers like anima, etc., that's what they mean. What you have heard tonight here are the eight ones. But besides these eight ones, and in much shorter time, I will not have time to go into the detail of it, here is a list first of the 30 minor cities. Some people even say you should call the first ones Maha cities, and these 30 and more which come next, this should be called cities. But some people call the eight ones cities, and then they, they say these lower ones, you don't deserve to call them cities because they are much more little, tiny things, very useful in daily life perhaps, but much more tiny. And then in India, sometimes instead of cities, they call this one ridis, like cities and ridis, or another alternative way is maha cities and cities, to show that there are two categories. Just for your curiosity, because such a lecture would not be complete without me describing the whole panorama, I spent more than one hour telling you about the real biggies, the big ones, what is at the top of the ladder. But for curiosity, here is a brief account. I'll go through them relatively just explaining basic things, uh, explaining the 30 ridis or minor cities, some of them not so minor as you are going to see, as described by the very seminal text, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And then you are going to find out that there exist many, many others which Patanjali forgot to mention or he was not interested in mentioning. So the list is actually longer than 30 of them. I'm giving them in the order of Patanjali. That's why it doesn't always make a logic sense. They are not grouped according to categories or in a crescendo or something. They are just given the way Patanjali lists them in the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra. Niroda Parinama Siddhi, the power owed to the mental control, fruit of the self-mastery and forceful concentration upon the three kinds of results proceeding from natural laws, dharma, spe specific particularities, lakshana, and existing conditions. This capacity, to make it clear in case you didn't understand, allows to the advanced adept to know the past, present, and the future, especially in relationship to a certain being. Like the capacity to see past, present, and future, past deeds, past lives, karma, seeds of karma, the present in a complex way, and the future, the resultant of this. <clears throat> Second, the subtle power of the sounds, words, and their mysterious meanings. There is a whole thing that all of them are connected at the level of the collective subconscious mind, and the rapport between the subtle frequency and the sense are aspects of the same indivisible subtle reality. Concentrating forcefully upon each one of them separately, the adept understands telepathically the language of all creatures. There have been known yogis who spoke to the animals, and animals understood them, and actually sometimes all of you who have been in the presence of animals, you know that sometimes you talk to an animal, it's obvious that the animal doesn't understand your language, 
and yet the animal gets the message like telepathically. There's a way of understanding beyond the words. There is a power of the sound and word which is intrinsical and uh, a power of the meaning if you want and that is another mysterious power quoted in the yogic text. The gradual but exact knowledge of previous existences recorded in the abyssal memory of the subconscious mind intend focusing on the samskaras, on the traces left in the subconscious mind of the being. Four, the art of reading staunchly the thoughts, feeling accurately the most intimate inner moods of other human beings indifferently of the distance as they would be yourself, oneself, and thus obtaining the faculty of knowledge from this. It's a form of telepathic empathy or identification. Fifth, the invisibility. According to Patanjali, this results from a very special concentration called Samyama upon the form of one's own body. Can you close your eyes and visualize the form of your body? Like the outline, like somebody would make a sketch, a line or drawing of your body. The outline, like the skin of your body, just the outline. The yogis say that if you visualize the outline of your body and then you move it to the level of Samyama, it, it, it will appear that sometimes people will pass you as if you are not there. Like subjectively, people don't see you as if you were invisible. And it's a, it's a thing that the radiations from the eyes are screened. It's like you are out of the light in a subjective way. It's very difficult to describe. I've seen people practicing this to certain extents, and it was marvelous to see how suddenly everybody seemed not to perceive them, although they were very important personalities. And suddenly, like they were physically there, but 90% of the people were blind as to their presence. Miraculous, mysteriously, incomprehensibly. People think that invisibility is a sort of thing where you clack your fingers and you actually disappear. You don't need to disappear. You just need not to be seen by the others. That's enough. That's what invisibility means for these people. Six, to anticipate the exact knowledge and moment of death, which is obtained by the intense concentration upon the nature of actions that give immediate consequences or karma and those with late karma. I have known teachers in my life, at least two of my teachers, predicted exactly and accurately the time of their own death. Like they knew exactly with months and months in advance that they were going to die at that time. Then it just happened as they predicted it. So I've seen it in action as well. Seven, the unusual spiritual power called Atma Bala Siddhi, the power of Atman, of total consciousness, which is the born from the intense concentration upon the state of friendliness, pleasure, love, compassion, sympathy, and detachment. By focusing on this state, people obtain a sort of a spiritual power, like Jesus was perceived by all the people around him who were not enemies because they were demonized in their heads. They all perceived him like a friend. He even called his disciples friends my friends, you know, like everybody felt extremely close. That's called Atma Bala Siddhi. It's a power of the soul that makes people come very close in a way through this power, like they are you. 
Eight, getting the physical power, specific feature or characteristic ability of any creature, human, heavenly, or animal, which is born by concentration upon those elements or powers that we want to transfer. I knew when I was in India, I knew a yogi who was practicing this Samyama, and he could break elephant chains on his chest, like he could stretch an elephant chain, a chain which is meant to harness an elephant, and which are really thick and strong. And this guy could gather it like this, put it on his chest, and snap it. He could snap an elephant chain with his bare hands. He could have an agriculture tractor run with its wheels over his chest, just across his chest, and a few other things like this. Swami Dayananda had this power to such an extent that when he wanted to demonstrate to somebody who was in a terrible spiritual error, he just grabbed the wheels of a cart with four horses, and the four horses couldn't pull it. He just held with one hand the wheel, and four horses couldn't pull that cart from that place until the guy realized, he looked back and he saw that Dayananda with one hand was holding the power of four horses. So it is, this is obtained by sucking that power from an animal. For example, the yogis say, if you make Trataka on an elephant, you tend to become powerful as an elephant. And then you push a tree and the tree goes down. Morihei Ueshiba the founder of Aikido, who was 1 meter 50 tall, he was a really tiny little Japanese man, he could take trees thicker than these pillars in the hall, bamboo trees and forest trees. You imagine that when a tree is this thick, it's pretty tall and it has a pretty considerable root. Morihei Ueshiba could grab it like this and pull it out of its root, simply pull it out of the earth, break it out of the earth. That's inexplicable by muscle power. That's a paranormal power. And Patanjali says it comes by sucking it from where it exists in nature, from animals, heavenly beings, human characteristics, and so on. Nine, the knowledge of the phenomena of things subtle, hidden, and removed from the past or present is obtained by focusing on Akasha, on the eater of Vishuddha Chakra, and then concentrating it intensely upon this reflected light upon the resulting images and moods. This is to be able to know things of past and future via Akasha, to know things through Akasha Tattva, as it can result from abnormally long practice of Ardha Matsyandrasana, for example. 11, I'm sorry, 10, the knowledge of the subtle heavenly world and particularly of the solar system by concentrating forcefully on the sun from a subtle standpoint, like you do sun, solar, trataka, you do sun salutations and you focus on the sun a lot, a lot, many, many hours every day. And one attains an intimate knowledge of the secret nature of the physical world and of all the other parallel heavenly worlds. So you both astronomical and subtle. 11, the paranormal knowledge of the influence of the planets. Concentrating forcefully upon the moon, the adept attains the intimate knowledge of the planetary astral nature and phenomena and of the entire range of physical planetary worlds. Twelve, the exact knowledge and perception in one's own inner being, like how they reflect on you, of the complex movement and influences of the stars, which is obtained through the intense concentration, samyama, upon the pole star, on the polar star. Since uh, all this, the, this star seems immobile as the whole vault is spinning in the northern hemisphere. So it's a Samyama on the pole star. 
And from this there results the knowledge of all the stellar astrological, astronomical, like what exactly, what Rumi did. We can say that maybe we don't know, but Rumi did Samyama on the pole star. And then he understood the structure of the galaxy and many, many other things. Thirteen, the intimate and total knowledge of the body and of all, all its energetic constitutive elements, which is obtained by intense concentration upon the subtle center of force, Manipura chakra, placed in the area of the navel. If you do Samyama hours and hours on Manipura chakra, you fully understand the body and every organ and energetic constituent of it. That's why people that have a bit of this capability on Manipura chakra, they are very good doctors, very good healers, very good diagnosticians. Now, theoretically, if you take a story like uh, the cultural thing of Dr. House, a television series like that, you would say that Dr. House is such an eminent diagnostician because he has a hell of a big Manipura. The funny thing is that the character in Dr. House series is a very arrogant, manipuristic person, exactly as some eminent doctors are. Very egocentric, very arrogant, very full of themselves, in a certain way, therefore, very unspiritual and selfish, but damn good when it comes to the body. Like really having a knowledge of the body. So remember, Manipura Chakra is the key of healing the body. It's the key of knowing the body. Fourteen, the definite liberation from the sensations of hunger and thirst, as well as of the necessity of food by intense concentration on Vishuddha Chakra, placed in the area of the throat. By Samyama on Vishuddha, people can fast for extended durations of time and still have unusual and great energy. I've tried this one, and you know that there are people who are fruitarians, bretarians, solarians, and other such things, and there are people who are known to have gone without food, like the two cases described by Yogananda Paramahamsa in his self-biography, where people would go with just a trinket every week and still not lose weight and go on and on, which contradicts a lot of beliefs of modern science and materialistic things. Fifteen, the perfect calmness of the body and mind, as well as the total immobility, which is, which is basically a state of suspended animation, where people stop breathing and stop the beatings of the heart, and they can be put in a pot, in a vase, under the water or under the earth, and they don't breathe, and they don't die. This suspended animation is obtained upon concentration on a subtle channel called Kurmanadi, placed in the area of the hollow of the throat, like a little bit under Vishuddha Chakra, and connected, belonging to Vishuddha Chakra. Sixteen, the exact vision and telepathic contact with sublime and supernatural beings, or with the great yogis and sages of this planet, of the history, which is obtained by intense concentration upon the, ineffable, upon the ineffable bright white light that shines from the subtle center from the top of the head, Brahmarandra, on the physical part of Sahasrara. So focusing on a white light here for years, it actually makes you start having visions of Buddha, of Lao Tzu, of Milarepa, of Rumi, and all of them, because it's all coming from the crown. Seventeen. The knowledge even anticipated of all things that is obtained by the intense concentration upon a secret secondary chakra called 
Pratibha chakra, a chakra of divination, and which becomes activated in the perfectly calm mind of the advanced adepts. The intimate 18, the intimate identifying knowledge of one's own consciousness and intellect, like to be able to identify, which is obtained by intense concentration on the subtle center of the heart, Anahata chakra. This is called sometimes in parapsychology, empathy. To be able to empathically, emotionally become one with another person. <clears throat> 19 is a real complex one. The visualization and intimate perception in one's own expanded being of the intrinsical form of the immense cosmic being. And this is about the power of hearing, the power of total touch, the power of sight, the power of taste, the power of smell. And it's, so it's starting from the five senses and obtaining the perception of God through the five senses. To see God, to hear God, to feel God, to taste God, and to smell God. 20. The exit in the subtle body, out of the physical body. At a simple level, this is called astral projection. This is the intense concentration on the subtle or astral body, which in yoga is called very often linga sharira. And this wipes up and elasticizes at the most the illusory conceptions that keep it tied to the gross or physical body. Like the more you do it, the easier it is to get out of the body. And then basically thus, the adept may leave at will the physical body like a dress, like a piece of cloth, for traveling extremely fast and invisibly almost anywhere, taking again his physical body after a certain lapse of time, shorter or longer. Sometimes it's even perfectly possible to abandon the physical body when this is worn out or something, and to settle in other worlds or realities. This is what the Tibetan yogis call pova, and it's a much more advanced version of this. 21 intangibility. As soon as the yogi concentrates forcefully again upon this ascending energy Udana Vayu related with Vishuddha Chakra and which produces some phenomena such as coughing and so on, uh, then the human being, then the yogi, the Patanjali text says that neither the water, fire, mud, thorns or sins, nothing can touch him anymore and even death itself or deadly angels related with the four elements are without power upon such a man. It's like developing a high frequency of vibration which rises one over the problems of the five elements. 22. The control of the burning subtle vital energy called Samana, which is the Vayu of Manipura Chakra. The burning digestive subtle energy irradiated in all directions from Manipura Chakra, concentrating forcefully upon it, the end, the yogi amplifies its energy to the most so that he sees his body as surrounded by flames and radiating like a dazzling fire, this perception being also shared by other persons. Like you are surrounded by a fireball of energy, which has many applications, of course. 23. The sublime paranormal audition. By focusing on the sense of hearing and reaching to Akasha, to the ether, the yogin sublimes the sublime audition. He can hear the more subtle sounds, the most secret, the most unsuspected, the most remote, indifferent if they are common or belong to another plane of manifestation, as well as hearing the nadas, the mantric sounds, and other various cosmic energies. Some mystics, for example, in this clear audition, it's called clear audience in parapsychology today, they heard the music of the spheres, like the music of all the planets of the solar system, like in an orchestra, like in a band, and sometimes the music of the angels. 
In India, they didn't call it music of the angels. They call it the choirs of Gandharvas, the celestial musicians that play divine music. 24, the levitation. Again, the now mentioned as levitation, as a smaller city, not as Lagima, which is metaphorically big. Concentrating all the way and on the ether and identifying with light and tiny objects such as particles of dust or threads of cotton floating in the wind in the air. Like when you see in a summer day, there are lots of things floating in the air, microscopic little things. Then the yogi identifying with that becomes light as that going in the air. This sutra of Yoga Sutra was used by the people from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the transcendental meditation, in their TM Siddhi. They took the sutra in Sanskrit. They translated it so they knew what it matters. It, it contained the words light as cotton. And they simply went and repeated thousands of times by breathing in a holotropic way, light as cotton, light as cotton, light as cotton, light as cotton, until they went into self-hypnotic modes. And when they were like this in self-hypnotic modes, if they would push themselves a little bit, it's like their body would be four times lighter, and it would just hop in the air in very strange ways. So it, they would obtain a form of semi-levitation. Of course, there are stories. There is a beautiful Hollywood movie called The Reluctant Saint, which tells the story of an Italian saint who, because of his prayer, he was levitating so much that the other brothers in the monastery, they had to tie him with chains because he was like a balloon. He was like a kite. He would fly through the church and knock down statues, icons on the walls. You know, he was losing it completely. And the other brothers, eventually, they put a chain around his leg. And when he started floating, they kept him down because he was making a mess. So it sounds anecdotal, but it proves like if this is really true, then why are people doubting about the existence of anti-gravitation and levitation? The 25 is the free and total exit of the mind outside the physical and the subtle body. This is called the Mahavideha Siddhi or the Mahavideha Dharana. And it is called today by some people remote viewing. And by the most yogis, it is called mental projection. Uh, Milarepa has a wonderful account of his experiments with Mahavideha, what happened when his mind could move freely anywhere, and then what, his, what started happening. The 26, according to Patanjali, is the unusual conquest of nature. It's for, it means controlling the five elements. For example, if you control the water, you can never drown. The water cannot harm you. A yogi that controls the water element, and some yogis in India, I've seen a Buddhist nun in Thailand doing this, they demonstrate this thing, that they can put air in their body and do some pranayama, and then they'll go on the Ganges or on some lake, and they float. They float like cork, like they would not drown in such conditions. It's a childish way of the, but some yogis sit in fire. Like there is the fire yogi, this guy who goes pretty much inside a bonfire. And the temperature goes to incredible levels, and yet his clothes don't catch fire, and he doesn't get burned. He doesn't get first-degree burns, second-degree burns, nothing. Although he stays at measured with thermometer, he stays at temperatures which would be unbearable by the skin, by the body, or even by fabric. And somehow he manages to produce a protection that he can partly sit inside the fire without getting burned. This is the typical control over the five elements. You control the earth, 
you would understand earthquakes and things like that. You control the water, you understand floods, uh, drowning, rain, so and so on, and you wouldn't get drowned by water. Understanding fire is not getting burned by fire. Like Francis of Assisi prayed to the fire element, and then he was not burned by fire. Understanding the air element means, again, levitation, lightness. It, becomes, it means becoming light as air. And Akasha is, of course, with the things of Akasha Tattva, which most of you know. 27, a little bit more, and we reach there. There are three of these ones, and then a very, very, very brief list of the others. The definitive victory upon the five stages of perception of the senses. So the five tattvas have five states. Only those of you who do the level four in Agama will understand this about the levels and sub-levels. And that simply means to, uh, to be able to understand the chakras and the energies and the levels of the universe at their various levels of depth. 28, the paranormal knowledge of all things, beings, and phenomena. As soon as the yogi understands the difference between the seen, the seer, and the process of seeing itself, then one understands the process by which we acquire knowledge. Knower, knowledge, and known object. And then he, a person can reach a form of knowledge, of all knowledge, of understanding things. I have met yogis who could just look at something, read through some text, and they would suddenly spontaneously understand something which was hidden and between the lines there, like seeing through a little bit like um, Sherlock Holmes, who could look at things at which everybody looked and he saw something else. He saw through the things and he said, elementary, of course, it's elementary. Nobody could see that elementary thing because nobody had the mind of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is a kind of a semi-clairvoyant type of character described by... Conan Doyle. The paranor 28, the paranormal knowledge of all things, beings, and phenomena. Oh, I said this already, sorry. 29, the paranormal knowledge of time. The time necessary for an atom to move within its own length is the atom time or the instant, kshana. Its ceaseless flow is called sequence or krama, which generates time. Time is like a slideshow, like a very fast slideshow, like a cinematographic movie of frames. And focusing on this knowledge, focusing on this imagery of the time as moment and flow and krama, sequence or succession of elements, the yogis therefore get understand the complex and simultaneous nature of the things and phenomena and thus to know the past, present and future. And finally, the transcendental power, parasiddhi, which is uh, that through this, with discrimination, the yogi notices that he can destroy any evil energy or influence, thus reaching to liberation or helping others to reach without too many obstacles. That's a power which is used by spiritual teachers when the disciples are confronted with spiritual tests and at the same time when the disciples honestly and sincerely ask for help and they are humble enough to accept the advice. There are some conditions for this. Just the last paragraph which I wrote here, besides these eight powers and the 30 following one, there are so many other rupa siddhis, perfections of the form, such as the irresistible magnetic charm called Lavayana Siddhi, the amazing force of the will power called Bala Siddhi, like you have a power, you will, and things are happening according to your will. The unshakable firmness or stability, the Sanhanana Siddhi, the 
which comes like from doing Paschimottanasana and grounding very well. Yoga Anka, by which the body of a person becomes like Geranda Samhita describes that the body becomes divine, godly, so it, it charms God, man, animals, everything, just through the perfection of the form. It is mentioned in history that Buddha had an incredible, charming presence, not because he was beautiful, but there was something in his movements, like he was a dancer. He didn't dance, but like something in his movie. And the same thing is, of course, said about Jesus, that unless people were angry at Jesus because it disturbed their own demonic tendencies, people saw in Jesus an archetypal beauty, something which was divine. Like just to watch Jesus walk from here to there was like seeing God walk the face of the earth. So there was something. Uh, besides this, there are so many cities. I never try to really make an exhaustive list of every single city or paranormal thing that I have heard about in my life. Yoga is full of these, but you already had a list of the eight Mahasiddhis. You had a list of the 30 cities quoted by Patanjali, plus a little bit of a list of others and others. Like this doesn't mention, for just to take an example of something which parapsychology is very pleased with, Psycho psychokinetic abilities that some people apparently with the tips of their fingers they can generate an energy and move objects either very tiny objects like a little fluff or a little feather or something or sometimes even more consistent objects and heavy that they are moved without physical touch or influence or something there was a Russian psychokinetic woman researched by the Russian parapsychologists some 50 years ago, they could, for example, take an egg and blend it, and she could separate the yolk from the white of the egg by focusing on it. So she could simply separate almost at the level of cells and molecules. She could separate the substance in a liquid just by staring at it. And after she did this, she was wasted. She was completely exhausted. Like she was not doing it in a yogic way with the universe. It was a selfish way. She was putting her own power, her own vitality into it. And this consumed her terribly. But still she could do it. On a small scale, she could do it. The capacity was there. This was an account for her to make a difference. Today, I wanted to give you this account of the magic world of yoga. That in yoga... The mind and the five chakras with the five senses and the five elements are considered to have a huge influence in, in, in the understanding and control over the universe. And part of the things which are written in yoga are going that way. Because there are people who would say, I don't have an illness, therefore I don't do yoga for health. I don't have too much interest in the daily life, like daily life seems to me quite boring and circular, and just to do something, to do some Udhyana Bandhas or Trataka, to get a little bit better at this or a little bit better at that aspect of the daily life <coughs> is childish in a certain way, and therefore there would be people who would go for the big guns, you know, like, is it possible for my mind to do this, to perceive that, to feel this, to acquire that? And then people would go there. Some people would say, what about the spiritual part? Well, there would be people who would say, I want the spiritual part and the paranormal part. 
And there will honestly be people who would say, I don't understand the spiritual part. You have to explain it to me better. Maybe I get thrilled by it because this ideal that yoga is immortality and freedom sounds really good. And I might get hooked on that. But until I understand that level number four, I stay with level number three, which sounds thrilling and interesting. And that is why I'm telling you all these things and paranormal things manifest when people are firewalking. And there was a guy, an ex-NASA employee, who was doing workshops of bending spoons. So he was actually getting people capable of bending cutlery. At every workshop of this, they had about a thousand forks and spoons bought specially for this. And people were rubbing them and chanting mantras and doing things. And by the end of it, many, many of them were torn, spiraled, crazy, and so on. So, like, there are many things, and that's why I'm saying the paranormal exists. It's right there. It's in the daily life. I've seen, I heard so many other examples, you know, like the ancient metallurgic masters of yore, the people who melted iron, the iron, the smiths of yore, they tested the consistency of the molten iron by hand. They dipped their hand in a bucket of water and immediately they dipped it in red hot liquid iron. And they didn't get burned. They just churned through it and they said, it's good, pour it in the form. Like who would be the maniac who would have the courage to take his wet hand and dip it in 1,500 or more degrees molten red hot iron and know that I'm not going to get burned. Like this would generate not a third degree burn. This would generate a fourth degree burn and it would char your hand to the bone almost instantaneously. And people did this. This, is, this was the traditional way of testing molten iron 200 years ago. Now they do it with probes and with things. But in those days they didn't have the technology. So they tested it. The smith could stick his hand in molten iron. This is a paranormal ability acquired by this. I was warned about this when I started studying yoga by one parapsychologist from Romania who said the same capability, housewives acquire it sometimes. He said, look at women who spend 30 years in the kitchen and you are going to see that they know how to take hot pots from the fire with their bare hands and move them quickly, pam, pam, and they don't get burned. And if you try to do the same thing, you scream and drop it on the floor because it really, really burns. They have a state of mind. They go into a state of mind where they say, go, pump, pump. You know, you just handle a super hot pot, which is boiling at 100 degrees. You don't get burned on your hands. And you do that 15 times per day. Even in a kitchen, a housewife develops sometimes paranormal abilities by just dealing with the elements. The paranormal is so close to what is normal. And it's, that's why there exists this wall of silence, which makes people blind. Instead of people opening their mind and seeing, my goodness, what a magic world we are living in, people are like, uh, no, I don't know. Uh, no, this is the expression of tamas, that the spirit is heavy, that the spirit is not soaring, and your spirit says, my goodness, this is great. This is something very mysterious. Uh, no, let me sleep. This is the tamasic dullness of the spirit, which makes that people have miracles happening in their kitchen, but they don't see it. They can't see it. There are so many phenomena in the biological life 
like Louis Kervran demonstrated that when things are sprouting, when a bean is sprouting, you have paranormal phenomena big time which physics cannot explain. When an egg is hatching, there happen transmutations, nuclear transmutations, which cannot be explained by modern science. And the human body contains in it the capacity to transmute and sublime the sexual energy, the vitality, and other things. And there is no full scientific explanation for those things. Like the miracles are happening all the time, even in our lives, even in our bodies. But the question is to have the discrimination and this lightness of spirit to dig them out, to highlight them, and to realize that we live in a mysterious world. For me, the paranormal part of yoga has done this. It has awakened me by me trying to look at these things scientifically, parapsychologically, and seeing that some of them have been demonstrated beyond doubt by scientific, totally scientific controlled experiment, and then understanding that you know, this is showing to me, obviously, that there is so much more to life, to existence, to the universe, to evolution. That's why this part of yoga, which is the paranormal part, should not be missed. It looks like a stunt and it looks like an inflation of the ego. It looks like collateral and unimportant. But the truth is that motivationally speaking, it awakens in the human being this quest and this feeling of mystery that things are not what they seem to be and we should always see the deeper part of things. Enough of this. I gave tonight an account of this. Next week the satsang will be again on Thursdays as we usually keep them. It is late enough for today. Namaste to all of you. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.